John chapter 3. I don't think I have to tell you that this is one of the most famous chapters in the Bible. But as I cautioned us last week, let's not let our apparent familiarity with the text prohibit us from seeing what's really here. There's actually quite a bit here that in some ways is rather difficult. My family and I were out hiking yesterday and we ran into the Nacellis. Dr. Nacelli was here with us a few weeks ago and uh, we got to talking about John chapter 3 and I just commented, you know, we think this passage is so simple, but there's a lot here that's really challenging and he agreed that even for New Testament scholars, there's some things here that are really challenging. So let's see what we can make of this this morning. John 3 records a conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus while Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover. And commentators have debated over the nature of this dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. What was the tone of the conversation? Was there a hint of sarcasm or ready acceptance in Nicodemus' voice? What did his body language communicate? Hostility? Agitation? Curiosity? Nicodemus' opening remark in verse 2 seems polite and respectful. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But does that politeness hide a more sinister agenda? Jesus' response just cuts right to the heart. Jesus abruptly confronts him with his need for spiritual rebirth. And in verse 10, Jesus' response is actually mildly combative. Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Probably this conversation is more combative and antagonistic than we are, uh, than the way it's often presented. And I want us to be careful that we do not read the text anachronistically. Do you know this term, anachronism? In other words, don't, don't read it as if Nicodemus knows as much about Jesus as we do. Nicodemus is trying to figure out who this Jesus person is. At this point, Jesus is a nobody in the eyes of the Jewish leaders. Jesus did not follow the traditional rabbinic path of being apprenticed to a teacher for years and years. Jesus was self-taught, and consequently, he was without formal authority in the eyes of many Jewish leaders. Now, it is true that Nicodemus recognizes the power of Jesus' signs. However, Nicodemus has genuine reservations about Jesus, and I'm saying that because of the way our passage is situated in the text Again, as we did last week, look back at chapter 2 and verse 23, and notice these words. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Why not? Because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And John likely intends Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus to illustrate these verses. Remember, there's no chapter vision, 
So chapter 3, the encounter with Nicodemus, illustrates chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Nicodemus sees all these signs, but Jesus can look into his heart. And he knows that he really cannot fully entrust himself to Nicodemus. And that's why Jesus responds so abruptly in verse 3 of chapter 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And we know from verse 4 that Nicodemus is confused by Jesus' terminology. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus goes on to explain the new birth. What does it mean to be born again? And we looked at that dialogue last week, all the way down through verse 10. But let's go ahead now and re engage the dialogue from verse 9 and read all the way down through verse 15. Again, verse 9 betrays Nicodemus's uncertainty. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? The new birth? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you, Nicodemus, do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, a moment ago, I used the term dialogue. Indeed, John 3 records a dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. However, the dialogue actually ends with verse 9 and turns into a monologue. Nicodemus' final words in verse 9 confirm his confusion and his doubt. How can these things be? E.A. Carson suggests the words of verse 9 can be translated, how can this happen, the new birth? How can this happen? He doesn't understand. And again, Nicodemus already betrayed a misunderstanding back in verse 4. Do you have to go back into your mother's womb and be born all over again? So verse 9 indicates that he still doesn't get it. And Jesus' response is going to bring his problem into sharp focus. Nicodemus fails to understand the Old Testament. That's verse 10. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Well, presumably, a teacher of Israel was well-versed in what we now call the Old Testament Scriptures. Presumably, Nicodemus had read Moses and the prophets many, many, many times. Jewish teachers would have investigated, taught, and memorized much of the law and the prophets. In fact, some of them had the whole thing memorized. Nevertheless, Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, does not understand. 
Would you also notice the article the before teacher in verse 10? Are you the teacher? The article the implies that Nicodemus was no ordinary teacher, but a recognized and a revered master teacher. Nicodemus was likely much older than Jesus. Jesus at this point was an obscure young man from the rural district of Galilee. He was approximately 30 years of age. Let me put that in perspective. I will be 45 in July. So Jesus' life at this point is a third shorter than my own. Jesus was quite young. And Nicodemus had an established reputation. He had rabbinic credentials. And Nicodemus likely had a large fan, a fan club of devoted students, probably greatly, greatly outnumbering Jesus' own twelve. And further, Nicodemus lives in Jerusalem, and this is the epicenter of Judaism. Jesus is from up in the north, from Nazareth, from this despised little hamlet. And he would have betrayed his humble origins every time he spoke. You have to really appreciate the power differential between these two. It tells decidedly in the direction of Nicodemus. He's the authority, right? He's the older, wiser rabbi, right? Nevertheless, Nicodemus' final statement is an expression of utter confusion. He doesn't understand. How can these things be? How can this happen? Now, I'll not re-preach last week's sermon. Suffice it to say that Jesus viewed the Old Testament as teaching the necessity of the new birth. Ezekiel spoke of God sprinkling clean water on his people and just washing away their idolatry, washing away their uncleanness. And Ezekiel also spoke of God putting his spirit into their hearts and cleansing them from the inside and calling their dry bones back to life again in the resurrection. We are born again of water and the spirit that was in the Old Testament, had been there all along, and Nicodemus didn't understand. And that brings us then to verses 11 and 12. After identifying Nicodemus' failure to properly interpret the Old Testament, Jesus is going to find further fault with Nicodemus. And commentators are a little uncertain as to why Jesus uses the plural we and our in verse 11 to refer to his teaching and testimony. It's unlikely that Jesus is referring at this point to his disciples because as yet they know very little about who Jesus truly is. They themselves are discovering his true identity. We're still very early in Christ's ministry. Most likely, Jesus is using the terms we and our sardonically, responding to the plural that Nicodemus used back in verse 2. Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we, plural, know that you are a teacher come from God. Nicodemus is not yet singling himself out as a potential follower. He doesn't say, I know that you are a teacher come from God. He takes a more gentle approach. We, we know. And so Jesus, Jesus is just responding to him in kind. Well, we and our. Jesus then moves right to the heart of Nicodemus' fault in verse 11. Nicodemus is unwilling to receive Jesus' testimony. 
He's not yet a believer. Jesus says, you do not receive our testimony. That's your problem. You don't really receive our testimony. And he continues in verse 12 to highlight Nicodemus' failure to believe. But what exactly does Jesus mean in verse 12 when he says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Well, actually, what does that mean? Well, there's passages that you think is clear until you ask, well, what does that mean? What are the earthly things and what are the heavenly things? Jesus says, you don't believe the earthly things. How can you believe the heavenly things? Well, what are the earthly things? On the face of it, the earthly things might refer to the water of verse 5 and the wind of verse 8. Jesus refers to these earthly phenomena to make a point. And verse 12 is often interpreted that way. But I think this interpretation is a bit awkward. Is Jesus really condemning Nicodemus for not believing in earthly things like air, like water, like wind? When you just plug those words into verse 12, does the verse really make sense? If I have told you about water and wind and you do not believe, how can you believe I tell you heavenly things? It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. The fact is, whatever the earthly things are, there's something Nicodemus doesn't believe. So what are the earthly things? Most likely, Jesus is simply referring to the new birth. But wait a minute, doesn't the new birth come from heaven? The answer is, yes, indeed, it comes from heaven, but it happens here on earth. It happens here below. We are born again right here below, right here and right now. Contextually, Jesus seems to be saying, if you cannot understand the new birth, which happens right here on earth, how can you possibly understand the glories of the kingdom age to come? It seems to be what he's saying. If you cannot comprehend how one comes to faith in Christ on earth, in the present, how can you possibly understand the consummation of the heavenly kingdom in the future? Most likely is what Jesus is saying. And that brings us then to verse 13. Yet another verse that has proven a little difficult both to translate and to interpret. So let's read it again. Jesus said, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So what does that mean? Well, I think we all know that Jesus' most frequent self-designation is the term Son of Man. That much is easy enough. He's talking about himself. That's who the Son of Man is. It's Jesus. But what does it mean that he ascended into heaven? You see that at the beginning of verse 13? No one has ascended into heaven. What does that mean? Now, we know that after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he ascended right up into heaven. You want the account? Go to Acts 1. 
Jesus ascended right up into heaven. He was lifted right up off the earth and into the clouds. But that's still in the future. Here it sounds like Jesus has already ascended and then descended. You see that? It is a little confusing, is it not? So what is Jesus talking about? All right, when you really understand what he's talking about, the text really opens up and it's really quite beautiful. I'll not go into the technicalities of the Greek translation, but would you notice the term except, except. No one has ascended into heaven except, all right? That term can introduce an exception to a general rule that has been introduced. Here's the rule, now here's the exception, all right? Now, follow this very carefully. Here's the general rule. No one has ascended to heaven to consult with God and to return with revelation from God. Do you know anybody who's done that? God did indeed inspire the prophets of old. That is true. But those prophets, if you read the Old Testament, didn't go up to heaven for their inspiration, all right, only to return again with that information. God sent his revelation from heaven down to the prophets, not the other way around. It is true that Elijah went up to heaven on a fiery chariot. That is true. But he didn't come back with revelation. So that's the rule. That's how revelation works. It comes from God out of heaven down to man, down to his prophets. That's the rule. No prophet walking the earth below went up to heaven and came back with revelation. None of them went up on a fiery chariot and consulted with God and came back and said, well, thus saith the Lord. All right? No one has ascended into heaven. But wait! There's an exception to that general rule. In other words, there is someone who came in the opposite direction. There is someone who actually came out of heaven in the opposite direction and descended with revelation. Someone did indeed come immediately from heaven to reveal God's truths. And who is that? Well, the answer obviously is the Son of Man. That seems to be what Jesus is saying. He is the exception. Now look at verse 13. Let me try to read it to you with this sense. All right? Look at it carefully and I'll interject a few things. No one has ascended into heaven. Pause. No prophet ever went up to heaven to consult God. Except, wait, there's an exception. There is a prophet who descended from heaven. Well, who's that? The Son of Man. That's what Jesus seems to be saying. In other words, what Jesus does in verse 13 is he establishes a prophetic bridge between heaven and earth that comes down out of heaven. But friends, this is no ordinary bridge. This is a human bridge, the Son of Man. This is Jesus himself, the Son of God, standing between heaven and earth. Now, I know that you're really familiar with the term Son of Man because I have preached on this title numerous times. But let's turn back to John 1 and let's see how this term Son of Man was first used in John's gospel. And this will add clarity, I think, to John chapter 3. 
Back to John 1. At the end of the passage, Jesus has just called Philip and Nathanael. Nathanael was amazed that Jesus already seemed to know who he was, and indeed that he saw him sitting out there under the fig tree. And Nathanael hailed Jesus as the Son of God. All right, that's the context. Now observe very carefully Jesus' response at the end of verse 50. You will see greater things than these. Greater things? Like, what are we going to see? Verse 51, And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And that passage immediately reminds us of Jacob's ladder running back and forth between earth and heaven. But the ladder, in this case, notice this, is the Son of Man. He is the bridge. The Son of Man is the point of union between heaven and earth. Those bright heavenly angels traverse the highway between heaven and earth, fulfilling the plan and the purpose of the Son of Man. He is the one who just opens up that portal. And notice those words, all right? Ascending and descending, all right? The angels ascending and descending. These words are present participles. What does a present participle indicate? It indicates an ongoing reality, a permanent reality. Because a son of man is creating this bridge, the angels can now come and go on a permanent basis. That's what actually the verse is saying. Now, bring this back to John chapter 3 and look at verse 13. Again, Jesus claimed, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. No one has gone to heaven to bring God's plans and God's truth down to earth. But wait... The Son of Man did descend from heaven to bring God's plans and God's truth down to earth. That seems to be what Jesus is saying. Jesus has bridged the gap. Jesus is the great exception. Jesus, unlike all the prophets, brings the new birth down from heaven. All right? But there's probably a little bit more to it based on what we saw back in John chapter 1. All right? So follow this, when we think of Christ's ascension, we almost always think exclusively of Acts chapter 1. We call that the ascension. In Acts 1, Jesus goes up with the clouds. Likewise, when we think of him descending, we think of his first and second advents. So Jesus came, he descended, he left, he ascended, and he'll return again. He descends. We think of three distinct events. And those things are all true. But remember what Jesus said back in John 1. The angels come and go permanently. The participles, this is just going to keep on happening 
There's this bridge that's been opened by the Son of Man, and the angels just keep on going. Likewise, there was a sense in which Jesus comes and goes. Are you ready for this? Permanently. We can say it this way. The Son of Man is a permanent bridge between heaven and earth. He is always descending and he's always ascending. He descends to rescue you from your sins and he ascends to bring you up to glory when you die. He has done that millions upon millions upon millions of times for believers all over this globe for 2,000 years. He's descending and he's ascending. Don't think of Jesus merely coming once and leaving 2,000 years ago and then coming again at some point in the future. That's all true, But in another sense, Jesus is coming and going is now permanent. It really, truly is permanent. And we have met this idea on a previous occasion, but I do want to review it in this context. All right? Will mentioned the book of Daniel this morning. I love the book of Daniel also. It probably is my favorite Old Testament book. In Daniel 7, we find a glorious vision of the Ancient of Days. And he's up there in heaven, and he's sitting on this throne. And that throne is just wreathed in fire. And there's this liquid river of fire that just cascades out of the throne. And there are tens of thousands of angels all around this throne. And in the night visions, Daniel, like Jacob dreaming in the night, sees heaven opened. And with the clouds, he sees a son of man coming, coming to the throne. Now observe, when you and I think about the coming of the Son of Man, we often, if not exclusively, think about Him coming down to earth. But in Daniel, when we first read the coming of the Son of Man, He's not coming to earth, out of heaven. He's coming into heaven. He's coming to a throne. It's like those angels on Jacob's ladder, the traffic can go in either direction. Well, which way is he going? In Daniel 7, he's going right up to his throne. In Daniel's vision, the Son of Man comes with all these clouds. And when he comes, he receives from the ancient of days power and authority to rule all the nations. And Jesus' coming amounts to his permanent reign. Now, Matthew's gospel, if you recall, presented an extended argument that Jesus was the Son of Man. And that Jesus really, truly was enthroned over all nations at the resurrection. But do you recall, I hope you do, what Jesus said when he was put on trial in Matthew chapter 26? Jesus claimed, from now on, from now on, that sounds rather permanent, From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And guess what? The word seated and the word coming, those are also present participles, indicating ongoing activity. This is a permanent reality. This is something entirely new. And it's not just a one-time deal. This is permanent from now on you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. He is coming from now on. And friends, that statement got Jesus crucified. 
But that crucifixion was, in fact, the inauguration of God's king on Mount Zion, Psalm chapter 2. And that's why Matthew's gospel concluded at the resurrection with Jesus' declaration, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I own them both. Daniel 7 is fulfilled, and that's a permanent reality. From now on, all right, a son of man, a permanently incarnated man, rules over heaven and earth, and he's forever coming to his heavenly throne, and he's forever ruling over earth. He is always ascending and descending. I know that sounds strange to us, but when you put it all together, that's what's happening. His authority moves in both directions. He has authority in heaven, and he has authority on earth. He goes up and down the ladder. He is the ladder. He is the bridge between heaven and earth with angels coming and going. All right? Now, let's think our way back into John's gospel. John's gospel, unlike Matthew's, does not focus on the kingship of Christ. Nevertheless, he does use the term son of man quite frequently. That is, John, the author, does. And just listen as I read several instances where this term shows up. The first time we hear the term son of man is back in John 1 and verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That suggests continual activity. In John 3, Jesus now has a conversation with Nicodemus. And in verse 13, he says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And that again sounds like movement in both directions. And now read chapter 3 and verse 14. Jesus said, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And notice how the Son of Man who descended is suddenly lifted up. In John 5 and verse 27, Jesus describes the authority of the Son of Man. With that authority, he tells us the Son of Man is going to lift people up out of their graves. Then in John 6, Jesus miraculously feeds the crowds by multiplying loaves and fish. But curiously, Jesus, the Son of Man, claims that it was not Moses who gave you that bread of heaven out there in the wilderness. That bread, he said, descended from God out of heaven. And Jesus then describes himself as coming out of heaven to be devoured as bread on earth. And Jesus said in John 6 and verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Jesus is the manna that falls to the earth out of heaven. So the Son of Man is lifted up, and He falls to earth like manna. Now in the same context, in John 6 and verse 62, we read this. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Well, there he goes in the opposite direction again. And then in John 8 and verse 28, we read this. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. He seems to be situating himself right there between heaven and earth. And then in John 12 and verse 34, the crowds are confused by Jesus' teaching, and they ask him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? 
And the crowds still do not understand Jesus' mission. What does this mean? The Son of Man will be lifted up? Lifted up like a serpent, serpent in the wilderness? What does this mean? And then one chapter later in John 13, Jesus makes his final reference to the Son of Man in John's Gospel. This is just after Judas departs the upper room. And Jesus says this, Now is the Son of Man glorified. This is before his crucifixion. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Well, that sounds like him ascending to be glorified. All right, now I just threw, I just threw a whole bunch of text to you. I get it, all right? You, you probably didn't get that all written down. I'm sure you didn't, all right? But I do want to just simplify for a minute, all right? When you just take all these references, like we did in Matthew, and you take all the references and you put them all together, it seems that Jesus is descending and ascending are two dimensions of the same mission. His descending and ascending are two dimensions of the same mission. His mission is to establish a permanent bridge between heaven and earth. His mission involves him descending and ascending, stitching back together two worlds that are ripped apart at the fall. That's what he's doing. You've got these two spheres you got heaven and earth, and they just ripped apart at the fall. And Jesus is descending and ascending and stitching them right back together again. He's a bridge that's pulling these two pieces back together again. In fact, if you think about the very term son of man, doesn't it sound rather earthy? Isn't a son of man a human being? A human offspring? If I say a daughter of woman... Well, wouldn't you assume a mother's offspring? There's an assumption here of a human being. Nevertheless, the term son of man is just full of glory. When you first come across that term in Daniel 7, it describes this regal, glorious figure that surpasses all human beings. It describes one whom the ancient of days gives the right to rule all nations, one king, one rule forevermore. So friends, Jesus is God's agent of reconciliation who descends and ascends and descends and ascends permanently because he is pulling earth and heaven back together again. He is bridging the gap. He is bringing together that tear that was ripped apart at the fall and stitching the two right back together again. So if I can say it this way, Jesus descends and he ascends and he reunites two estranged spheres. That's what's going on here. All right, now that was a long explanation of verse 13. Hopefully with all that in place, we can move now to verses 14 and 15 with this marvelous statement in which we have a description of ascension. Verse 14. Are you in John 3? Where are you? Are you in John 3? Okay, I've been all over the place, so I lost track of where you are. John 3, all right, verse 14. Notice these words. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, I suspect that we read those words and we assume they have something to do with Jesus being lifted up on a cross. Right? Do you assume that? I'm not trying to trick you. That actually is a good assumption. All right? That's a good assumption. 
And I want to show you that by cross-referencing now with John chapter 12. Let's look at John chapter 12. What does Jesus mean here? When Moses lifted up the serpent above the camp in the wilderness, all who looked on it were spared. Likewise, the Son of Man will be lifted up, and all who believe on him will have eternal life. I mean, what else could Jesus be referring to besides the cross? But just to be clear about this, let's look at John chapter 12. When the same verb, lifted up, is used by Jesus in John 8 and John 12, he is speaking of his cross. It's the same verb that we found back in John chapter 3. In John 12 and verse 32, Jesus proclaims, look at these words, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Same verb, John 12, verse 32, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Well, that actually sounds like ascension, doesn't it? Lifted up from the earth. But what does that refer to? Acts 1? No. Next verse, verse 33, John writes, He said this, to show by what, kind, by what kind of death he was going to die. He said what? He said, when I am lifted up from all the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Why did he say this? To show what kind of death he was going to die. So clearly, friends, the lifting up of the Son of Man above the earth is a reference to his death. The Son of Man is lifted up from the earth. That does indeed happen at the ascension. In fact, he goes right up to the clouds, Acts 1. But he was lifted up before the ascension. He was lifted up on a cross to die. Would you consider then the beautiful irony of Jesus' death? His humiliation was his exaltation. His shame was his glory. His degradation was his ascension. Even while he descended in his incarnation, he ascended on his cross. It's no wonder that Jesus said, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended. This is very strange. But what other kind of death in all the universe, in the words of verse 32, will draw all people to myself? Friends, there was something uniquely ascendant Can I say it that way? Uniquely ascendant about the death of Jesus Christ. It is the most exalted death in all the universe. It was a death unlike any other. It was simultaneously the most shameful and exalted death on planet earth. It was, in fact, the beginning of Jesus' exaltation and his return to the Father even while it was the most unjust death in the universe. This is how the Bible views it. His death was his exaltation. It was his lifting up. It was his shame, and it was his lifting up simultaneously. It was, again, the most unique death on planet Earth. Now turn, if you will, back to Isaiah 52. And let's notice again for the first time words that we have read many times before. But let's read them in light of what we've learned from John's gospel. 
Now, we know, of course, the content of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 famously describes the suffering servant. If you want to look at the text, verse 4 of Isaiah 53 says this, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did seem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him, on Christ, the iniquity of us all. Hardly more beautiful words have ever been penned, and we know that those words describe the death of Jesus, the suffering servant. I will not prove that at this point. I think we understand that. My point in turning back to Isaiah, though, is to notice how this beautiful passage is prefaced. Would you look back at the words of verse 52? In verse 13, Isaiah says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. And shall be exalted. God's servant is exalted. He's on high. He's high and lifted up. Well, what does that refer to? His resurrection? His ascension? Acts 1? No. Keep reading. Verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. That's the new birth. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Friends, when God's servant is exalted, And he's high and lifted up. He is totally unrecognizable in his marred, ugly, wretched human condition. He is beyond human semblance. He looks nothing like that regal son of man in Daniel 7. He looks nothing like a son of man born in the womb of every woman. He is beaten. He is whipped. He is pummeled by Roman soldiers and nailed to a cross. Is that grotesque creature hanging there? Truly a member of the race of mankind. In the words of verse 14, does he belong to the children of mankind? Is he even a son of man? You have to ask that question when you see him on that cross. That looks like no human I've ever seen. Is he truly human? Is he exalted? And the answer is yes. And he will sprinkle the nations with his blood. This is what Jesus was referring to. I'm going to wash away your iniquity and you're going to be born again. And he will astonish the kings of the earth. They'll be astonished by him. In the words of verse 15, that which they have not heard they understand. 
In John 3, Jesus asked Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Well, Nicodemus was one of those rulers of verse 15. He's among that class of the kings of the earth. And he doesn't understand. He doesn't see the cross. But wait, Jesus claimed back in John 12, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw people to myself. And look at verse 15, that which they have not heard, they understand. Did that happen? Well, Jesus was indeed lifted up on a cross to die. He was high and exalted in that shameful position on a cross. And at that moment, Nicodemus, the earthly ruler, returns. And let me read to you from John chapter 19. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. This was a very dangerous thing to do. Jesus was considered a common criminal. So Joseph came and took away his body. Listen to this. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they, who is the they? Joseph and Nicodemus, took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Friends, the death of Jesus was a death unlike any other in the universe. It drew people in. When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Jesus was indeed exalted, even in his shameful death. That ugly instrument of torture on which he died has indeed become the world's greatest symbol of hope. Do you realize there is no more visible transcultural, transnational, transhistorical symbol anywhere on earth than the cross? Nowhere. There's nothing like the cross. Dallas Willard writes, Jesus stands quietly at the center of our contemporary world as he himself predicted. He so graced the ugly instrument on which he died that the cross became the most widely exhibited and recognized symbol on earth. Jesus' humiliation, friends, was his exaltation. His shame was his glory. His degradation was his ascension. And Jesus' death was a resurrection to new life. Friends, you just read the book of Acts. And Jesus' death and his resurrection are so closely linked together. It's like they're one event. It is Jesus descending and ascending. He's going in both directions. It's like the angels coming and going. You can never tell which way they're going. He is descending and he's ascending. He's dying and he's resurrecting. It's all designed to bring us back to God, to reunite heaven and earth. He was lifted up on a cross. He was placed in a grave and he ascended to the right hand of God. He descended and he ascended and he has permanently reunited heaven and earth. And that, my friends, is the foundation of our new birth. Christ died so that I can die with him. 
and Christ resurrected so that I can resurrect with him. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the coming of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that he will come, even today, for a lost sinner. And we ask that they might happen for someone, even this morning. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.